Well, good morning, everybody. Congratulations to all those who were baptized last weekend. And if you needed a reminder of why we do what we do, it's Sundays like that, right, gang? It's a, it's a great visual picture, tangible fruit from all the investment and efforts from parents to grandparents to student workers, children's workers, and everybody else in between. It's the church being the church, seeing those folks go into the waters of baptism. And appropriately so, this morning, we're starting a series It's taking us through the season of Lent called A God-Soaked Life. And so appropriate that there's a connection between when you make a decision to be a follower of Jesus, at some point you get into the waters of baptism. And that water-soaked moment is an outflow of what we're going to be looking at in the book of Colossians called A God-Soaked Life. So open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be in this book for the next several weeks. It'll take us through the Lenten season up through Easter. Most likely it's going to spill over into April for a few weeks to be able to do justice to the full text here. And the season of Lent, this is the 1693rd year that the Church of Jesus has paused and set aside a 40-day period of time to prepare ourselves for the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we are stepping in to the history. Now, in the Protestant church, sometimes it takes us a little longer to connect to some of this history. So like I said to the Ash Wednesday crew, we, we kicked off our, our Lenten season this past Wednesday night. Thanks to all of you who came, were a part of that. It was our second ever Ash Wednesday service. But the Church of Jesus has been doing that for 1,600 in 93 years. So I said we only got 1,691 to catch up, right? And so this morning, I want to invite you into this 40-day period of preparation, and I want you to view Lent the following way. I want to encourage you to, to look at this 40 days as an opportunity to calibrate and index your life to Jesus, to the kingdom of God, to Think about what are the maybe some new habits and some rhythms you can establish over these 40 days that when we get into Easter weekend, you could say, you know what, on the inside of my life, I'm a little bit more in sync with what God's up to in this world. That's the essence of Lenten season, by the way. Lent means spiritual renewal. Its its root word is tied to springtime. And it's about preparation. It's a time to slow down, to quiet down, and to lean in. And when we do that, gang, I believe over these 40 days together, we will conclude what the Apostle Paul is concluding in the book of Colossians, that Christ is all. If I had to give you a three-word summary of Colossians, there it is. Christ is all. Maybe you come in this morning, marriage unraveling, Jesus. Wayward child, Jesus. Health crisis, Jesus. Career uncertainty, Jesus. Need a breakthrough, Jesus. At the end of your rope, can't figure out how you're going to keep going through whatever it is you're going through, Jesus. On the receiving end of breathtaking grief, Jesus, Jesus, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's the essence of the Lent season. That's the essence of the book of Colossians. And I position to you that at the end of our one and only life, I believe that is the essence of life 
life as a whole. Christ is all. He's it. He's the beginning. He's the ending. And he's everything in between. So let's open up our Bibles, shall we, in Colossians 1 and get to work on that. This is a little preview of coming attractions for where we're headed with all this, because here's what Paul says, verse 1 and following. If you haven't pulled out your notes yet, it's on your bulletin, or you can fire up your app. You can get the bulletin electronically that way. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Let me give you a little backdrop, set a little context here for the letter. So the author of this letter is a man named Paul. And a couple of years ago, we did our series through Acts, and we learned about how Paul wasn't always Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. So you might want to write in the margin of your Bible there, Acts 9, And he'll give you a little backdrop in case you missed that journey with us. But Acts 9 helps you understand how Saul went from being a persecutor, one who arrested Christians, who imprisoned them, who planned on killing many of them. This is that guy. So Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, who ends up writing 13 of the 27 New Testament books. So maybe you enter into this Lenten season and you go, you know what? I don't think God's, I think God's done with me. I've done too much, I've gone too far. I commend to you the man who wrote this book. That the Apostle Paul says, it doesn't matter what you've strayed into, it doesn't matter how long you've strayed into it, there is no pit that God's love and grace is not deeper still. Jesus can make a way. And this is Paul's evidence of it here. The last guy you would have handpicked to author half the New Testament would be this man. And he's gonna prepare us for the Lent season. And his conclusion is, Christ is all. You've gotta ask the question, what happened to that guy? You know what happened to that guy? Jesus. Maybe someone asked that blue chair that I'm sitting in or that you're sitting in, what happened to that guy? What happened to that gal? I hope the testimony is Jesus. Jesus happened. That's why you're here. That's why we're engaging is Jesus. Paul met this Jesus. It didn't just change some things. It changed everything. Christ became his all. He went from trying to stamp out the name of Jesus to try to proclaim the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's this apostle Paul. So he writes this letter from prison in Rome. Lest you think when you get your life linked up with Jesus, it's gonna be easy street. So this is where... I I struggle so much with some of the theology and the prosperity teachings, right? Sometimes I know some of you really like Christian TV, and I just kind of shudder at times when I hear some of you flipping on that station, and you need a really healthy filter for what you're listening to there, because you need a good, healthy dose of the Apostle Paul's life to sift through prosperity gospel, because your best life in Jesus' name is not now. Hallelujah. Anybody, your best life is not now. Paul's in prison because he's got linked up with Jesus. Now, you got to picture him. He went from trying to throw Christians in those bars to him sitting behind the bars because he met Jesus. You got to, what happened to that guy? Are you kidding me? So it's around 60 AD he writes this letter. He's in Rome. He's in prison because they don't like his stance for Jesus. 
A young man named Epaphras, that's another key name for the book, Epaphras comes to him and visits him. Now Epaphras, he met Jesus in Ephesus. So to understand your New Testament, anybody wanna guess what letter is written to the church of Ephesus? Ephesians. This will help you understand the New Testament a little bit. So there's a church in Ephesus. Paul writes a letter called Ephesians to that church. There's a church in Philippi. Paul writes a letter called Philippians. There's a church in Thessalonica. Paul writes a couple of letters, First and Second Thessalonians. That's what the New Testament looks like, what it looks like. So here, Epaphras comes to know Jesus in Ephesus, and he's been so radically transformed that he takes off to Colossae. Now here's where Colossae is on your map. It's in modern day Turkey. So Epaphras goes from Ephesus to Colossae with the name of Jesus and more people come to Christ and he plants a church there. And so he goes to visit Paul in Rome and he's like, Paul, I need some help and guidance in, in leading this new church. Paul sits down behind prison bars in Rome, pens a letter, Colossians, to send with Epaphras back to Colossae to give him some guidance. You tracking with me? Around, so we're 30-ish years removed from Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Now, two cultural realities are kind of setting the ethos of this letter. I need you to hang with me here because you need to get cultural context so when we dive into this, you understand why he's saying what he's saying. The first cultural reality we've got to get a good handle on is the Roman Empire. Now, all you students in the room, it's time for you to tune back in because you maybe tune out in your world history classes at this point. I need you to tune in for a few minutes. The Roman Empire is significant. It's hard to overstate how influential the Roman Empire is in this day and age. Do you understand that Rome, at its peak, the empire was 4,200 miles in dimension, wide. Do you know the U.S. is 3,300 miles wide? So the span of the Roman Empire was greater than the span of the United States is today. From India to England, check out your map sometime and just go India to England and just write Rome over the top of that. Now follow me. And it carried the domain of leadership over that span of geography, hear this now, for 1,500 years. Are you kidding me? This July, the United States will celebrate its 242nd birthday. 242 years. The U.S. has been around. Gang, Rome, 4,200 miles of its empire for 1,500 years. Do you think it had some influence? Massively shaping the culture and the context and the way of life, not just in the first century, as I'm gonna talk about in a moment, how it affects our day and age today. And three main kind of Roman Empire influences. The first one is this whole concept of roads. So Roman roads, have you heard that phrase, all roads lead to Rome? You ever wonder what the root of that is? The Roman Empire. They, they built their first road in 312 BC. By the time Paul writes this letter, there are 50,000 miles of roads connected to the city of Rome. 50,000 miles of Rome. Do you know that today, 
you can still travel some of the roads that those original builders built and original bridges were built. You know there's still some in operation today. Are you kidding me? I think, we need, I think our DOT department can learn something from the Romans. You take a trip up I-69 at five o'clock near Fishers and all those flashing construction cone signs, how many more years are we gonna have construction in that same part of town? The Romans figured this out. 2,000 years ago, 50,000 miles of road and they're still driving on the same bridges and the same highways. Now what did those roads do? Follow this now. Do you see how those roads then allowed an interconnectedness with humanity that before that was just impossible? The way that people were able to kind of import and export culture and architecture and religion and philosophies and people groups, those roads, those highway systems, are you tracking with me now? That was a significant influence. This became a melting pot. How did the Roman Empire become such a melting pot? The Roman roads. The second influential area of the Roman Empire, known as Roman peace. If you lived in the walls of the Roman Empire, here's what your life experience was. It was a very peaceful way to live. Now listen, inside the wall. Outside the walls of the empire, you don't want to come up against Rome. As Jesus, one day, would be pronounced by who to be executed ultimately. Pilate, the Jews, released it, washed his hands of it, and then the Roman execution means was what? Crucifixion. So the Romans, there was, they said there were hills and hills all around the empire with crosses of people they've crucified hanging for the birds to eat the flesh and for everyone to look at and say, you, either be, you need to be in the empire or you're gonna end up like that. Inside the empire, peaceful, Little skirmishes here and there, a few, but mainly peaceful. Have you heard the phrase Pax Romana? Roman peace. It's kind of the Pax Romana's going on here. And so there's this Roman roads which ushered in a level of Roman peace, and the third area was Roman law. Here's kind of the three main ways it was so influential in Paul's day. Roman law, the Romans were unbelievably skilled at listening to people understanding people, making sure justice was being carried out, and that the laws of the land were finding that middle ground between really rigid and flexible, like strict and lenient. They just kind of walked in that middle ground pretty well, which helped Pax Romana, peace flourish, because if the people sensed they were being heard from and being cared for and justice was being served, they didn't, have much, they didn't really have a reason to rebel. And because the the empire was so large and the military was so strong, they kind of kept the skirmishes at bay. So for 1,500 years, they just kind of lived as if Rome was the answer. Rome was the hope. Rome was our peace. Rome was our light. Memo, do you think the apostle Paul has anything to say about this? So Paul now is going to position to the church at Colossae a question. Is Rome really your hope? Is, is Rome ultimately going to be your peace? Is Rome really going to be your light and your answer? And here's the amazing thing. We, 2,000 years removed from all this, we get to read this letter now, 2,000 years later, we get to look back. Here's what we get to ask. Who was right? Who was right? Was Paul right or was Rome right? 
Is Christ the light of the world or is Rome the light of the world? Is Christ our true hope or has Rome been our true hope? Has Christ provided the real answer, capital A, or has Rome provided all the answers? 2,000 years removed. Now remember, when Paul's writing this, picture him in the middle of that 1,500-year span where the Roman Empire is so dominant, writing these words. Are you kidding me? You know why he got tossed behind bars? I give you a little understanding. He's behind bars in what city, did I tell you? Rome. Shocker. Because the Roman leaders are getting their hands on some words he's saying, and they're connecting the dots to what we're saying here in this series, Christ is all. Oh, boy. Caesar Augustus, head of Rome. Whoa, 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 whoa. He hears what group of people saying Christ is all? Shut that down. Because Rome is all. Rome is your answer. Rome is your hope. Rome is your light. Do you see the influence of this? So right here, there's a collision coming. And this is why life for the followers of Jesus in that day and age became so practically, the everyday life with Jesus was very difficult physically. Now spiritually alive and joy and meaning and purpose and hope, but physically, very difficult everyday life. All right, with all that said, we're going to verse three now. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, Imagine you are praying, verse four, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. I want you to underline your Bible, gospel at the end of verse five, underline gospel in verse six, just as it had been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Now, the second dominant theme besides the Roman Empire is this reality called syncretism. Now, syncretism, just kind of a fancy word for saying this. Because humanity had become a melting pot, the spiritual and religious landscape had become a melting pot. So the people of Colossae, Epaphras comes, speaks to them about Jesus. They're like, yeah, Jesus is our guy. I'm jumping on the Jesus train. And then they turn and they look at their mystic Jewish neighbor and they're like, hey, he's kind of cool. He prays cool. I'm, Jesus, I'm with Jesus. Jesus is my guy. But I'm gonna toss in a little Jewish mysticism into this. Oh, and then my other neighbor, he's like a druid. And the druids, they've got some weird stuff going on with animal sacrifices and stuff. But, but boy, he loves his wife well and he treats his kids so great. I'm gonna mix in a little druid stuff, a little Jewish mysticism stuff. But Jesus is my guy now. It's called syncretism. Because the Roman roads created the avenue which people could interconnect and export all this stuff, there became a melting pot on the religious scene. And so we're gonna introduce a Bible word that's gonna be important for this whole series, gospel, that I had you underline. Okay, so from these verses, first point for today, we've got two main points out of this first section, that gospel life is a God-soaked life. Now, the Bible word gospel, it comes from this Greek word, euangelion, say gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word, and it means good news. It means this, Jesus brings life. 
So the gospel is the deck. Epaphras ran in to the Uangelion in Ephesus. Jesus brought life to Epaphras. And now Epaphras goes to Colossae, and he's now proclaiming, did you see that? He's proclaiming the truth, the gospel, that Jesus brings life, the good news, the Uangelion in Colossae, and there's a church growing. And did you notice how Paul says, this is what happens when the gospel is going forth where? Just around the Roman Empire? What's his language there? All over the world, wherever this gospel, this euangelion is being proclaimed, wherever you're proclaiming Jesus' life, death, resurrection, that new life is available in him, there's forgiveness and grace in Christ, wherever that's being proclaimed, guess what's happening? Fruit is being born. Now listen, if you're the Roman leadership and you hear that, why are you throwing him behind bars? Because he's saying, one day the walls of the Roman Empire are going to crumble at the feet of this Jesus. Whoa. There's a new king in town. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul's going to lay his life on the line to proclaim it. The Evangelion, The gospel life is a God-soaked life. Have you discovered that in your own life? Maybe you're kind of heads down, running life your way, however you want to run it, and all of a sudden you stumble across the gospel, the Evangelion. you meet Jesus, and he makes all things new. You get into the waters of baptism, and things begin to change. Have you discovered that when you step outside the bounds of Zionsville, or Indiana, or the U.S., have you discovered this gospel is bearing fruit, 190 nations, around 2 billion people? Are you kidding me? Who was right? Paul or Rome? Who was right? This gospel. Justin and Julia and Chad Sears just returned from Germany and Sicily this past uh, Saturday night. Ask them. Ask them if they got to have eyewitness account. Is the gospel bearing fruit in Germany with 200,000 Syrian refugees overwhelmed with all the physical needs? Is the gospel bearing fruit? I think you hear from Justin and Julia and Chad. The gospel is bearing fruit. Ask Petula Myers about what's going on in Bosnia, 12 years there. Ask her if the Evangelion is making a difference somewhere on there. Maybe slow, tough sledding in little small pockets, but it's happening. Ask Mary Shum about what's going on in Cambodia or Thailand or Kenya. Ask Danny Marquez and Allie King about what's going on in the near west side as Allie's just moved in, full-time resident now, inner city west side. Ask her if the good news being proclaimed in those neighborhoods with all that need. Ask her if it's bearing fruit. Ask Dave and Don Rose, who lead a house up in Teen Challenge, up in Lebanon. Ask them if the Evangelion has anything to say to teenagers bound in addiction and abuse. Ask them. Ask Jeff and Ellie Brown, who got in the tank last Sunday. How powerful was that? Huh? Jeff and Ellie Brown, husband and wife, been around here for years and years. And then watch their two boys get in the tank after him. Ask the Brown family if the gospel is bearing fruit. Ask them. This is a transformation that Paul says, hey, at the end of the day, who's going to get the last word here? Is Christ our hope? Rome our hope. Is Christ our light or is Rome our light? Is Christ the answer or is Rome? Christ is all, Paul says. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of truth. It's the evangelion. And a gospel life is a God-soaked life.
Notice the whole letter starts with who are we thanking? We're thanking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The language of this whole letter is God-centered and Christ-centered because it's all about the power that's come from beyond Paul to transform Paul. Paul didn't just figure out one day, you know what, I wanna turn my life around. I'm gonna go this way. That's not how it happened. Paul was going this way and a life and a light and a, come from heaven. A life from beyond him came into him. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, manifestation of Christ, Acts chapter nine. Gospel. Have you met the gospel life? If you're a follower of Jesus, by definition, you're, new term, you're, you're living a gospel life, which is a God-soaked life, which I know you joined me this week praying probably deep sighs when we were scrolling the newsfeed around Parkland, Florida and trying to internalize the sixth school shooting in the first seven weeks of this year. And did you also whisper under your breath what I whispered and what many of our community leaders and law enforcement and government officials and school administrators are asking, what is going on? What can we do? Have you heard that? We need to do something about this, just rising up. We need to do something. And listen, we're grateful for every single one of those law enforcement, all those folks who put their lives on the line that we might have some measure of security in some places. But, but listen, one of the things going on with us culturally right now, are you tracking with me? Do you see the overlap between what Paul is dealing with in Colossians and where we are right now in the United States wrestling with? If we're waiting for Rome to issue some form of legislation to fix the darkness that we see breaking out across our land, gang, that's not the answer. Now, there'll be a, there's a place that legislation and law enforcement and leadership and administration plays. Don't misunderstand me. But the core issue is not that issue. The core issue is what Paul's bringing up here. Christ is our answer. Christ is our light. Christ is our life. Christ is our hope. And do you see what's happening to us as a nation? The more we push Jesus to the margins, do you know what comes in and fills that vacuum? When you push light to the margins, do you know a vacuum is created there? And do you know what comes to fill that vacuum? Darkness. Is it any wonder in our educational systems, the more we shove God and faith and Christ to the edges, the more at the center we have no moral compass. We have darkness reigning and ruling, and you have people going, what do we do? Colossians says, this is what you do. Christ is all. You fall on your face before God, and you say, God, bring revival to our land, or darkness is gonna continue to reign. That's what the church of Jesus does. It starts right here with us. We're the answer. We're the hope. Parents, you live with anxiety about sending your kids off to school. Do you know what we do? We drop to our knees. We say, Jesus, bring revival to this land. Bring revival to our schools. Bring revival to our government, its leadership. Bring revival. That's our hope because Christ is the light. Christ is the answer. Rome is not the answer. If we're looking for Rome to solve this, listen, we're 2,000 years removed from what Paul said. They didn't solve it. Christ solves it. And I think the more we continue to live and we pray for all that's grieving that's going on in Parkland and the unbelievable waves of sadness in that and we serve and we help and you watch with me, you watch who comes to the forefront at a time like this. You watch. You know who comes to the forefront? Gospel lives come to the forefront. 
people of Jesus come to the forefront. In the darkest times of humanity, you know who steps forward? Those who are carrying a repository of the life and the light of Christ. That's who's stepping to the forefront, and that's how it should be. And from this gospel life, turns to a God-soaked life. Verse 9, notice the posture now. If you really believe what I'm saying over the last 25 minutes or so, then here's the posture from which you and I shall live. For this reason, verse 9, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped, circle, praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray, circle, pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that, underline, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of notice, light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of notice, darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So a gospel life is a God-centered life and a God-centered life is a prayerful life. If you really believe Colossians 1 at the core of your being, the posture from which you'll live is a prayerful posture. If at the core of your being you believe you kind of got life figured out on your own, you, you've got the, you know, I got this, if you kind of pride yourself on not needing anyone, if you feel confident that your ways are better than anyone else's ways, that maybe in crisis and such you'll lean towards God, but when life's kind of going like you want it to go, you got this, you feel pretty well under control. Do you know that the manifestation of that isn't going to be a prayerful life? That's why I put a little kind of comment in my Bible years ago that just like, hey, you know, in my life, prayerlessness is an indicator of self-reliance. Like when I want a little dashboard of when I'm relying a little too much on myself and not depending on God, do you know where it manifests in my life? Prayerlessness. Which is why the Bible says we should be praying about everything. We should live in an atmosphere of prayer because I'm kind of dependent upon God for this very breath that I'm taking now. But there's this self-reliance thing that rises up that manifests in a prayerlessness, which then the opposite would be the case. If you believe the euangelion, if you believe the good news, if you believe you've got no shot of life, true life, without life from beyond you coming to you through the good news of Jesus, if you really believe that, then it's to your knees, church, that you live. Because what you're praying about is a window into what you're trusting God for. You wanna know what you're trusting God for these days? Be a fly on the wall in what you're praying about these days. That's the window. And what's Paul praying about? Did you notice? Unbelievable prayer. Some of you have asked, well, I don't know what to pray when I go up to the prayer room or when I get a, a block of time of prayer. What do I pray? Do you know a great place to start? Start with a prayer like this in Colossians 1. Start with the prayers in the Bible. Paul was an amazing prayer. The Psalms are filled with prayers. There's prayers all over the scriptures. Just highlight a prayer like this from 9 to 14 and just start praying that. Look what he was praying for. Did you track it? He's praying, 
to be filled with the knowledge of his will, verse nine, to have spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse nine, to live a life worthy of the Lord, verse 10, to bear fruit in every good work, verse 10, to grow in the knowledge of God, verse 10, to have great endurance and patience, verse 11, to live joyful and grateful, verse 12. Notice he's not praying much for comfort, peace, safety, security. Did you notice that? He's behind bars. <laughs> he's being threatened with his life. He's writing a letter to some folks who are probably gonna join him behind bars at some point, and here's what he's asking them to pray for, praying for those things. There's insight, a gospel life that's a God-soaked life, and a God-soaked life that is a prayerful life. That's the posture from which we pray. When I was kind of reading through this section yesterday at home, and I pulled out a Bible that Kendra uses often when she's praying around the house, and this passage from 9 to 14, she had written and bracketed, and she wrote my name. She wrote Eric in the margin beside it. I paused there, and I just took a couple of minutes, and I just prayed and gave thanks. I said, Lord, thank you for a wife that loves me and stands with me and stands in the gap and prays Colossians 1 prayers for me. Thank you for someone who faithfully endures and runs the race life and ministry together. Lord, thank you for the gift it is to be her husband. What a godly wife. What a gift she is. I just gave thanks. Colossians 1. Do you have anybody praying Colossians 1 prayers for you? Do you know what that's a window into? That's called a sacred companion. That's called a spiritual friendship. That's a relationship that helps you seek God. That's community in the body of Christ. The essence of relational connectivity in the church of Jesus is this. It's not just hanging out and sipping coffee together and enjoying time together. It's gotta be bigger and deeper than that. What's bigger and deeper is this. You are connected together to help you seek God. Do you see that with Paul's prayer? Their connectivity together, Paul's not even physically there because he's behind bars and he's saying what? You're gonna live a life worthy of the Lord. You're gonna bear spiritual fruit. You're gonna be filled with the knowledge of his will. You're gonna run this race with endurance and patience. You're gonna have joy and be grateful. Oh my goodness, what, what a gift it is to have people in your life who are praying Colossians one's prayers for you. Parents, you need a good prayer to pray for your kids? There you go. Or when's the last time perhaps you worked your way through a text like that even for your own journey, your own life, and your own soul. So I wrap up with Rodney Gypsy Smith. You heard that name before? You ever heard of Gypsy Smith? You can Google about him, because I'm just gonna give you the high points. Gypsy Smith was born in 1860 in London. Gypsy Smith never had a formal education. 1860, London, no formal education. Yet he was lecturing at Harvard in his adult years. He was invited to the White House twice to sit with two different presidents. They wanted his counsel and guidance. Gypsy Smith, through the 1800s, traveled 45 times across the Atlantic with the main agenda to proclaim the Evangelion, the good news, the gospel. They said of Gypsy Smith that it was hard to point to someone during that era who represented the name of Jesus with more passion than Gypsy Smith and saw more tangible fruit than Gypsy Smith saw. Literally tens of thousands proclaiming the name of Jesus. So as he was getting older, a bunch of young pastors got around him and they asked Gypsy. They said, hey Gypsy, what's kind of like, give us some insight. We wanna have the kind of ministry you've had for the last several decades. And here's what Gypsy said, because they said, as passionate as his 
preaching was, his praying was even more so. So here's the counsel Gypsy gave them. He said to these young pastors, quote, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There, on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan for Lent. Get your proverbial piece of chalk out, find your sacred space, draw a circle around it, drop to your knees, and fervently cry out, God, start a revival right here in this circle. Wow, what might our households look like? What our marriages look like? What would our parenting look like? What would our schools look like? What would our workplace look like? What would our church look like? I think it might look a little bit like Colossians 1. I think it might look gospel-centered and God-soaked. Let's go on this journey together, huh? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this letter. Thank you for Paul's life. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you for the many in this room who have come face to face with the Uangelion and you have changed us. Jesus, thank you for new life in you. Thank you, you've surrounded us perhaps with friends or family, loved ones who, who pray Colossians 1 type prayers. I pray that during this Lenten season, you'd bring revival and start it with us. Start it with me, start it with us, start it in the center of that chalk circle. That you'd raise up a generation of gypsy smiths to go to the ends of the earth and to testify that this gospel is gonna bear fruit. Have your way, mighty outpouring of your spirit as we journey through Colossians together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.